Lord, we love you and we love your word. There may be those among us today who aren't sure about you or aren't sure about your word, but right now, Lord, I pray that you'd grip them in their heart and grab them by their spirit with good news, a promise that you have a purpose, a revelation of your wisdom from your scriptures and according to the preaching of the word that would occur today. That can only happen, Lord, if you do it. So please do it, Lord. We need your wisdom. We need your spirit. We want your will. We praise your name. Amen. If you go online to mypcf.org, you can download today's bulletin, and you might find that particularly valuable because today's message is going to be full of a lot of information. And there in the bulletin is an outline available for you which helps kind of structure that information for you. You'll also be able to find on our website the slides for today and even from previous messages in this series. We are beginning today really in earnest our series on Romans, although it started last week. A week ago today, I preached to you purely the word. And what a joy that was for me. And how powerful that was, wasn't it? To hear the first six chapters of Romans as the sermon that they are intended to be. Well, we're going to be in a series studying Romans for the weeks ahead. And so now we begin to come in close for a detailed look at the book of Romans. I'm going to be doing that today in two ways. There's kind of a two-part focus for us as we begin the in-depth study of the book of Romans today. One is a large overview. We're going to be at that 40,000-foot level. If you can imagine a commercial jet airliner flying over the land and you can see the structure of things laid out below you from a high vantage point. That's part of the overview that I want to bring today. But that's actually something that we'll be continuing in our journey through Romans throughout the weeks ahead. Uh, in most weeks, I will probably have something to say about the book of Romans because there is so much to be said about it. It stands apart as a really remarkable, majestic achievement of Scripture. All of Scripture is God-breathed and worthy and valuable for instruction and teaching. But Romans is, no doubt, a very special presentation of the good news of God. Now, last week I mentioned that this good news has in it also bad news. In fact, the bad news is necessary to understand in order to appreciate and desire the good news. And in fact, in the first chapters of Romans that we'll be looking at today and next week, chapters 1 and 2, we really see that presentation of the bad news and the good news. The bad news is you and I are divided from God in our natural state. We were born into a fallen world, and we were born as fallen people. And even from that position, you and I have fallen further, haven't we? Let's be honest. We sin. We fail. We try. We fail. And there's a variety of ways in which Paul is going to help us to understand how our trying in all of our best efforts or all of our worst sins cannot achieve all of God's best plan for us. But the good news of God is that even though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, some have sinned in their self-righteous ways and still fall short of the law of God. Some have sinned by ignoring God or denying God or going in the opposite direction. But all have sinned in one way or another. The good news is that God's grace comes to us to enlist us in his mission of life, his message 
of truth, his purpose of hope, his family. So we'll take a closer view today on the first part of the first chapter. We're not even going to go all the way through chapter 1, really only looking at the first 15 verses. And most of those I'm going to ask you to read on your own. I preached them to you last week. I'm going to ask you to study them yourself this week. But we're particularly going to look at Romans 1, 1, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. That'll be our closer look today. And so as I mentioned, you can find a bit of this outline on the uh, bulletin in if you do download it, you'll see there's some blanks in there to kind of keep you awake and keep you tracking with me because I want to cover a lot of information today and I want to give you every assistance I can to help you. But you've got to do this. You've got to really kind of press in. Will you do that? If you will, turn to somebody near you or if it's just you and the dog, you can talk to the dog or the cat or you can say it to the Spirit of the Lord that, there, that is there with you. But make this statement today. I'm going to press in for the purpose of God. Say that. I'm going to press in for the purpose of God. Why not? God's purpose is pressing into you. Receive it, believe it, and find deeper understanding. So there's some blanks that you can fill in, and I'm going to help you to fill those in, but I'm also going to provide you answers later today on the website. So if you fall behind or I can't get to everything, you'll be able to find it at mypcf.org. Let's take a closer look. Well, actually, we will, but let's take an overview First, at Paul's purposes in writing to the Romans. What is this letter to the Romans? Who are the Romans? Who is Paul, for that matter? And why is he writing to them? As we delineate some of those essential foundational aspects of the letter today, we'll also get into Paul's preliminary presentation of himself. He's introducing himself to the Romans, and because of that, he introduces himself to us. And we find out something about who this guy Paul is and what his position is in Christ, how he's been cut out for Christ. That's today's title of today's message, cut out for Christ. And what does that say? What does that mean about his purpose in the Lord? As I mentioned, we'll find a very powerful presentation of that even in just the very first verse of this letter. But first, let's take a look at some of the broad strokes of the letter to the Romans. And in doing so, we have to kind of come to an understanding of who Paul is, how Paul operates. Paul, the Apostle Paul, this famous man of the first century AD who was born a Jew and educated in Judaism. He was really a Jewish scholar. He was a Jewish uh, leader. He was, uh, uh, had a position with the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish council, uh, that was uh, still operating in those days prior to 70 AD and a major shift in the ancient world, particularly for Judaism. And so he was very fixed on a um, what you could really call anti-Christian crusade. But he had an encounter that we'll talk about in just a moment with the resurrected and even the ascended Jesus Christ that totally changed his life. Hey, can I say something to you for a moment? setting aside Paul or taking that as a jumping off point to you. Paul had an encounter with Jesus that totally revolutionized his understanding of himself and his relationship with the world. Who is Jesus to you? How has your encounter with Christ changed your life? If you're a disciple and a follower of Jesus, it's because you've met him and he's changed you. I read an article this week that said that 
a lot of people are feeling like they're hitting the wall right now, especially with this pandemic. They feel like the steam that they've been surviving on has just gone out. The fire is extinguished. There's no more fuel for going forward. There's just a feeling of frustration, exhaustion, fatigue, a lack of hope. Now, maybe that's not where you are today. Or maybe you're hearing this message at some future point, God willing, when this pandemic has kind of passed over us. And maybe it's just not relevant to you. And if so, hallelujah, I don't desire to impose it upon you. But I just want to say, if you're feeling like even in the last week or two, even in the last month or so, you're just coming to the end of yourself and the end of your resources and the end of your resolve, I want to tell you I'm kind of there with you. I can relate to that too. And if you feel like you're frustrated with the situation or your faith is running out, you're not alone. It's kind of encouraging to me to see this secular article online and know that there's other people feeling that way too. But you know, it is at the end of yourself that you're often most ready to encounter the Lord and the beginning of God's purposes for you in these days of challenge. So whether it's what you're feeling or not, I can assure you God wants an encounter with you today. And that's what his word is always about. And that's what this message is about. But especially if you're feeling worn out and weary. And maybe, maybe it doesn't have to do with the pandemic, but it has to do with other issues in your life, other losses or challenges. Maybe this is some future point that you're hearing me or reading these words, but nevertheless, the reality is you know you need God. Well, there's no better place to be because that is where you can have an encounter that transforms you. So Paul, who had had such a powerful and transformative encounter with Christ, really operated on the principle that personal encounter was best. And that was typical also of a kind of sociological persuasion of the ancient world. I mean, today, we are so accustomed, and now necessarily, to encountering people at a remove, whether it's on Zoom or via Twitter or social media. But I'm not trying to demonize modern technology, but I think we've got to acknowledge also, it doesn't seem to be helping our personal relations altogether that much. Maybe we have a lot to learn about how to operate in those modalities. But in any case, what the ancient world prized was person-to-person -person contact. Important subjects were usually left to be described in person because it's in person that we get so much of the nuance of our interaction. There's so much about body language and gesture and facial expression and intonation. And also, may I put it to you, that just the spiritual sense of connection that comes when you are in close environment with somebody else is a big part of what it means to communicate as a human being. So Paul's most preferred form of interaction was meeting people face to face. And I must say that it would be an awesome thing, wouldn't it? if you and I could be a fly on the wall or a person in the congregation, when Paul met with the people of the church of Ephesus or Corinth or churches in Galatia, all churches that he founded, only the Lord knows and those people who are with the Lord now what it was like to have that kind of personal encounter. And yet, what really made those encounters powerful was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is still alive with us. In fact, 
All of them are still alive. They're a part of the great cloud of witnesses watching us from eternity. But here in the word of the Lord, you, you and I can have a present encounter. And yet, ironically enough, the way that Paul communicated with people was preferably in person. So what we have in the word was his lesser preferred modalities. For one thing, he would send an emissary. Do you know that this letter that came to the churches in Rome was carried by a woman named Phoebe? Sometimes people have the wrong understanding about Paul, and it's a rather complicated subject, and I understand there are places in Scripture where Paul makes statements that could be misconstrued this way. I haven't the time to go into great detail about it today, but suffice it to say, when Paul empowered Phoebe, a deaconess, which is really a way of describing a pastoral leader in the early church, an elder who was enfranchised to teach the people and to carry the word of God to them. He entrusted his letter to the Romans to a woman named Phoebe. There is in Christ neither male nor female. That is not to say that we have lost the distinction of genders. That's a present fallacy of our presently deluded world. But what it is saying is that both male and female, both Jew and Gentile, both slave and free, another complicated scenario that we're going to be talking about, are elevated in Christ with equal value. There's not one better than the other. And so Paul entrusted his letter to the Romans to an emissary named Phoebe, and it's most likely that Phoebe actually preached the letter to those that received it in the same way that I preached it to you last week. And so the third form that Paul would utilize, if he couldn't be face-to-face, and he couldn't send an emissary, or even if he could send an emissary, the way that Paul would present his gospel and give to those people a clear understanding of his persuasion about the good news of God was through writing a letter. And this kind of formal name for a letter is epistle. Epistle. An epistle is a letter. Will you say that? An epistle is a letter. Now, as I mentioned... Paul's preferred modality was encounter, and even in his letters, there's always a sense of his encounter. He talked frequently about his testimony, about how he had come to know Jesus Christ personally, and if you want to see it, you can read it in in, uh, Acts chapter 9. Paul was on his way to Damascus, and he was there on that journey in order to prosecute and persecute and even execute people who had come to believe that Jesus Christ was was the Messiah. Paul, as a devout Jew, nevertheless believed that Jesus was a a heretic and that Jesus' message of being the Messiah and of offering this good news of God was a false message. And Paul was so utterly dedicated to that and devoted to that that he was willing to put people to death for it under what he presumed to be the Jewish law. But in Acts chapter 9, what we see is Paul had his eyes opened. And yet the irony is that the way that God opened Paul's eyes was first to blind them. It was as though what God was doing was showing Paul how blind he was to the reality of the spirit of the law because he was operating purely under an understanding of the letter of the law and a misunderstanding at that. He thought he could see, but he was actually blind, so God showed him that he was blind so that then Paul could really see. And that very kind of dichotomy is something that became so central to Paul's 
theological expression of the gospel that we're going to find it all over Romans. Paul is going to present the law, but show how people misunderstand the law. They think they know the law, but they're blind to the law. But in fact, God shows them their blindness through the law so that by God's grace, they can finally see in order to fulfill the law. Not according to its letter, but according to its spirit. It is, in fact, a rather challenging presentation. And that's why Paul gives great attention to the detail of it and in a very orderly manner presents it throughout the book of Romans. And that's why you and I are turning to this particular epistle over many months to come because it warrants our close examination. Now, when I say that an epistle is a letter, I should give you a little bit more information about this. I remember once somebody saying to me, and it wasn't really a compliment, (laughs) sometimes I feel like your sermons, I feel like I'm in a classroom. I think what they meant by that was, I don't really want to be in a classroom when I go to hear a sermon. I want to be inspired and encouraged. But you know what I said to them? Good. I'm glad that you feel that it's a classroom because a sermon ought to instruct. Now, I'm here as a pastor, not as a professor. I'm not particularly accomplished in either mode, but it is a fact that the Lord has called me to those positions, and so I serve them according to his grace. But I have a purpose in these preachings, and that is that you and I would have a deeper, richer, more fully informed understanding of the gospel and how we can apply it in our lives. So if you feel like you're getting a little bit of instruction, you are. But remember what you and I said at the beginning of this message, that we are pressing in, We'll press into a deeper understanding. It won't go into anything overly complex in this first message, I promise. But it does require a little bit of investment on your part of mine. And so one thing we need to recognize is it's simple enough to say that an epistle is a letter. But an epistle is a special kind of letter, especially in the ancient world and in the New Testament. Let me say that again. An epistle has a special role or form and function in the ancient world in which it was written, and particularly in the New Testament. So let me say a little bit about that over the next few moments. In the ancient world, such a letter, an epistle, had three primary types. Now, it might be worth knowing that in those days, there was not a public postal service the way we know it today, which is, in fact, an entity rather under fire and under siege in the moment. But we've become accustomed to the idea that anybody can drop a mail, a letter into the mail to anybody else. But in the ancient world, governments had official postal programs, but they were, they were utilized only for governmental communication. So if you wanted to, for instance, like Paul, write to a group of um, um, you know, like-minded individuals in another city, you either had to hire somebody or enlist somebody to carry that letter to them for you, or you would ask somebody who was involved in business trade, or maybe even a stranger who was just traveling through, would you take this letter to that place for me? So uh, letters had a more formal usage. Even putting things into print and having something to write on and having the material, the ink to write and the tools to write with were much more expensive then. And while Uh, Literacy was not as uncommon in the ancient world as has often been presumed. It is still true that most people in the ancient world, the average person, did not know how to read. So even if you were going to send a letter, you had to trust that there would be somebody there to read the letter. In fact, that's one of the reasons why Paul would enlist an emissary, and any letter writer at that time might, so that not only would you have somebody to carry the letter, 
but you would have somebody to read it. Paul was an orator. His letters reflect that verbal uh, uh, mentality, that, that verbal approach. It's one reason why I think it's very powerful to hear the letters read out loud and even to read them. I want to ask you to do something this week. Read Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 15 aloud. Read it aloud. In your, in your home or in your workplace, uh, when you pull into the garage one night, read it aloud in your car. Let the areas of your life be permeated by the vocalization of the word of God. I think there's something powerful that can occur when that happens. For one thing, you'll hear it. You'll hear it many times. And in hearing it, the voice of God will become audible to you. Well, as I mentioned, in the ancient world, epistles were a rather refined form of communication. And so there were three primary types, royal or diplomatic letters, military orders or reports, and administrative correspondence. In other words, you see there was a very high premium placed on the pragmatic aspect of writing. These letters were generally written in order to help people to know what to do, what was going on, and how to respond to it. And that mentality really does permeate the New Testament epistles as well. They are seen as being formal. They are seen as representative of the kingdom of God. They are seen as giving enlistment and organization to the army of God, which is the people of God. Not that we battle against other people, not against flesh and blood, but even as Paul wrote in one of his epistles, the epistle to the Ephesians that we studied together last year, our battle is a spiritual one. And yet the letters of the New Testament give us marching orders in that spiritual battle. And that means that you and I can receive marching orders for today from these letters as well. The administrative correspondence has to do with how do you administrate the resources available to you? How do you deal with problems of people and organizational strife or growth? And the New Testament letters address all of those things as well. In fact, of the 27 books that make up the New Testament from the Gospels through Revelation, the major number of books, 21 of the 27, are epistles. In fact, when you hear that term used, the epistles of the New Testament, what you can know is those are the letters. They are letters from early church leaders like Paul, mainly Paul. His letters represent the bulk of the epistles, but also other leaders like James and Peter and John, etc., who are writing primarily to congregations, sometimes to individuals, and giving counsel about the things of God for that particular person or congregation, often addressing particular issues, particular problems, uh, particular moments in time that are very relevant to the people that were receiving them. But the Holy Spirit was operating in all of that too. And so the Holy Spirit is able to show you and I how the particular problems of our present moment are addressed in these issues as well. So let's take a look at the epistle to the Romans, specifically. The letter of Paul, the apostle, to the Romans. About 45 years ago, one of the most popular programs on the public broadcasting system, it came over, I think, from the BBC or from English television production, was a series called I, Claudius. It was an adaptation of a dramatization, a historical novel, or I think maybe a set of novels, about the emperor Claudius a real historical figure. In the first century AD, in the middle of that century, 
the Roman Empire was governed by a man named Claudius. He ruled from 41 to 54 AD. And somewhere during that time, we don't know exactly when, but we do know it happened. We have record that there was an edict, that is a, an official policy. It was like an executive order today that the president would issue. The emperor made an edict during that period. Now, we don't know precisely when it is, but we know that it prevailed for at least a year, probably multiple years. And so perhaps somewhere in the middle of that region, we have some reason to believe that. I won't go into the detail. You can research it if you like. But perhaps somewhere around the late 40s or even 49 AD, there was an edict made. And the edict was that people, Jewish people, or people of the Jewish faith and ethnic derivation could not remain in Rome. It may not be that they couldn't enter into Rome at all, but probably more likely that they were simply excluded from being able to rent or own property or operate a business or be uh, legally hireable. In other words, they were, not, they were persona non grata. They were an unfavored presence in Rome. They were evicted or excommunicated from Rome. Why? Well, in part, the Jewish people really stood apart from other ethnic groups and other uh, areas and people groups that had been conquered by Rome in the ancient Greco-Roman world. You're probably well aware that in the ancient Greek and Roman societies, there were a pantheon of gods. That means there were many different gods that were worshipped. Now, they, they weren't real gods. In fact, what we understand from the scriptures is that they became kind of holding places for demonic forces. It was a, a system of idolatry that was offensive to the Jewish people because it's offensive to God. And why? Because it damages human beings. But in any case, the Jews had been called by the scriptures, by the God of the Jews, to be people of one God who refused association with the worship of many other lesser entities that were considered gods or of false idols. And so because of that, the Jewish people had a very difficult time incorporating into uh, the, the, this Greco-Roman religious system, which was not only a religious system the way we think of it today, sort of a philosophical attitude about where you go after you die and things like that, but it was deeply ingrained into the civic life of people in the Roman Empire. The way that you were a good citizen, a patriot, faithful to the leadership, and dedicated to the people of your community was by worshiping all these different gods. So Jews were seen as people who really stood apart and stood against the community by many others in Rome. Also, the Jewish people were very eager to uh, achieve their freedom from the occupying force of Rome. You know that in ancient Palestine, as it was called, and in Jerusalem and what was Israel at that time, the Roman occupation was in full force. So even those rulers who were seen as indigenous rulers, people of the uh, Jewish extraction, for instance, Herod, weren't really devout Jews. They were people who were dedicated to the Jewish rule, uh, excuse me, to the Roman rule, and to try and achieve power uh, on their own or in that system. They were seen as collaborators, if you will. And sort of like the Vichy government of France during World War II with the Nazis. And so the, the, the common people, and especially the patriots of Israel, and those who viewed this as an affront not only against Israelites, but against God, took a stance of opposition. And in many cases, it was violent. There were violent demonstrations. There were sometimes mob um, demonstrations that would break out not only in Israel, but among Jewish people in Rome. Sometimes on the part 
of Jewish people who were fighting for their independence, sometimes on the part of non-Jewish people who were standing against their, their different ways. There was probably a lot of what you and I would recognize today as, frankly, anti-Semitism, a kind of ethnic prejudice against Jews in the Roman Empire. In any case, all of this gave rise to a very fraught society, and ultimately, Claudius brought the hammer down on the Jewish people by saying, you are expelled from Rome. Now, at that time, in the middle of the first century, just decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, virtually all the believers were Jewish believers because they were believers in the Jewish Messiah. And in fact, the real crisis of the early church was, can anybody be a Christian and not be a Jew? Because Christianity at that point was seen as a subset of Judaism, as a sect of Judaism. In fact, one of the greatest proponents, in fact, if not the greatest proponent, of the reality that the good news of God came to all people, whether they were Jewish or Gentile, was Paul. And Paul had occupied himself, this very most Jewish of people, so well-educated in the Jewish ways, had felt himself called to also express to non-Jewish people the good news that the Jewish Messiah brought salvation to everybody, and everybody needed it, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Because, after all, the covenant of God had come to the Jew first. The message of God and the word of God had come to the Jewish people and through the Jewish people first. But also the Jewish people had misunderstood and misapprehended that law. But so then do Christians, even to this day. And those who were outside had also disobeyed. That's what we see in Romans 1 and 2. Paul saying everybody has gotten it wrong. There are those that are self-righteous and those that are totally unrighteous. But both are sinners in the reality of the vision of God, but both can be saved in the reality of the sacrifice of Christ. Now, this particular message finds a unique application in the letter to the Romans precisely because of this edict from Claudius. So these churches that had sprung up in Rome, a city that Paul, at the point in which he is writing, has never yet visited, but he is aspiring to go there, is a city nevertheless in which people from this kind of burgeoning movement in the eastern part of the Mediterranean world, this growing Christian faith, have established Jewish synagogues of Messianic Judaism, of Christian Judaism in Rome. And there, they have begun to intermingle with non-Jewish people who also believe. But when the edict comes from Claudius, all the Jewish people have to leave. And the churches that are left are only Gentile churches in Rome. And they exist for perhaps five to ten years maybe even a little longer. So something like the better part of a decade or a bit more, the, the, the Christians in, Jew, in uh, Rome are only non-Jewish people. But then Claudius died. And like much palace intrigue in imperial Rome, his death is a bit circumspect. It's not known precisely how he died, but it has been conjectured that he might have been poisoned, although that is probably very difficult for us to prove. In any case, he died on October 13th of the year 54 AD. And his great nephew, an even more infamously uh, problematic leader named Nero, who ironically enough would become one of the greatest persecutors of both Jews and Christians during his reign, is the one who ended the edict of Claudius. He allowed Jewish people back into Rome. And this is precisely the time, sometime in the mid-50s, uh, 54 or 55, when this edict is rescinded and Jews come back in. And so Jewish believers and Gentile believers are now reintegrating. But how do you deal with that? How do you deal with this cultural crisis? 
How do we understand the Jewish scriptures uh, as Gentile people? As Gentile people, how do we understand the Jewish uh, principles that have been laid down for us? How do we collaborate as a community? All of these issues are very much at the forefront of what's going on among Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, in Rome. And that's when Paul is writing. We know that because we can kind of approximate Paul's itinerary through the book of Acts and through the letters that he wrote in the uh, New Testament era. There's three major missionary journeys that Paul makes that are described in the book of Acts. That doesn't mean he never made any more than those, but it means that we know at least about those three. And in the midst of his third missionary journey, he is probably wintering in Corinth, a city in Greece where he had actually founded churches. In fact, later on when he, or that is to say at other points when he is traveling, he writes to that church in Corinth. It's where we get the first and second letters to the Corinthians. He is nevertheless at this time, probably 56 or 57 AD, the winter of that period, staying in Corinth because it wouldn't be feasible for him to travel over long distances by sea, which was essentially the only way to travel safely and quickly at that time during the winter months. So he's got some time on his hands, he has support, and he wants to reach out to Rome. And he wants to do so particularly because he wants to speak to this very relevant issue of cross-cultural crisis, because who better to help Jews and Gentiles to understand their mutual mission, their mutual manumission, that is their freedom in Christ, and their mutual communion in Christ, than this great apostle to the Gentiles who is himself this great genius of the Jews and one who has had this great encounter with Christ. And so Paul intends to go to Rome, but he can't get there yet, and so he writes to Rome. He wants to have a person-to-person -person encounter with them, but first he's going to send an emissary with this epistle that becomes one of the outstanding documents of Christian faith for all eternity. Now, there's a few ways in which Romans is particularly unique in the Pauline canon. Paul wrote many letters, and most of his letters are what we call occasional. That means not that they only happen from time to time or that he wasn't a frequent writer. That's like me. My letters are occasional in that sense. I hardly ever write a letter anymore. I'm not very good about keeping up correspondence in that way. But what we mean when we say that Paul's letters are occasional is that they are occasioned by something. In other words, they're prompted usually by a problem. They're local. They come to the church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus. Even if it's to a general region, they are addressing the issues of that general region. The Galatians letter is to churches all over this area called Galatia, which would be like a province, a district, a state, however you want to think of it. But what he addresses there is very particular to those people and especially predicated upon his relationship with them. Paul is almost always writing to people he's already met. Very often he's writing to people who came to the faith through him. He's saying, you know, you owe your uh, awareness of the gospel to me. He's not priding himself on that, but he's often utilizing that as a way of trust, saying, you know you can trust me because I shared the good news with you. I planted that church. I pastored there in Ephesus. I led you in Corinth, and so you know who I am. You know how I operate. And his letters are often polemical, which is kind of a fancy way of saying he usually has an argument, and I don't mean negative. I don't mean that he's coming to be critical, but rather in the more academic sense. He has a thesis that he wants to address. 
For instance, especially in the letter to the Galatians, he is coming strongly against the idea that non-Jewish people cannot be Christian. They can't be followers of Christ. He has a polemical purpose to oppose that. This is what's typical of most of Paul's letters. But Romans, which actually has all of these things, as I mentioned, it is occasioned by some strife between, that's probably not the key reason or the first purpose why Paul is writing to the Romans, but there is an issue that he is getting at, the issue of how do Jews and Gentiles collaborate in the church of Christ. It is local in that it comes to the city. But of course, the city of Rome was a huge metropolitan city, one of the most multi-ethnic and sophisticated of cities of the ancient world. It is relational. In chapters 15 and 16, he talks to people he knows there in Rome. Even though he's never yet been to Rome, he does know people there. There are people like Priscilla and Aquila and others that he's had relationship with in other parts of the empire. And so he addresses them and he says, I'm going to come to you. And it is polemical in the sense that there are certain arguments that Paul is driving in Romans. But what we see is that rather than being primarily occasional, Paul's letter to the Romans is very orderly. He's trying to present a kind of thorough, comprehensive expression. Rather than in Corinthians or Galatians where he's zeroing in a singular problem, with Romans we get this glorious kind of comprehensive expression of Paul's fuller understanding of the gospel. Rather than being very local in its perspective, by writing to Rome, which is the capital of an empire, the greatest empire on the face of the earth as well as they can understand at that time, He's making very universal arguments. He's talking about things that really apply to the entire empire. And because he hasn't been to the city and he's mainly writing to people who have never met him, he's kind of promotional. By which I mean to say he wants to introduce himself to people who don't know him. He can't say to them, you know what I believe, you know how I operate. So he's got to introduce himself to them. And by doing so, he wants to offer to them a very equitable, balanced, magisterial presentation of the gospel. He's not coming to try and argue against people. So when you and I read in Romans things that sound very sharp and pointed, you and I should recognize that Paul's purpose is not to try and offend people, but rather to present a gloriously balanced, comprehensive expression of the entire gospel of God. In fact, Paul's letter to the Romans is his most systematic writing in the New Testament. It doesn't include everything of Paul's theology. There's other areas where we find more about what he felt and how he taught. But it is the best place, if you're going to go to only one letter, to find the totality of what Paul understood to be the message of God. And that's a pretty important message because clearly the Holy Spirit had deeply inspired Paul. It's also the longest, not only of Paul's letters, but of all the letters in the New Testament. And like the letters, the letter to Hebrews, which is another extended uh, writing, it essentially has a single thematic argument which is sustained over the bulk of the writing, and that is the righteousness of God. How is the righteousness of God revealed to people? So now we've done a bit of academic work here, but I want to bring it pastorally home for you. I want to say, how does this apply to you? Well, first of all, it means that the righteousness of God is something that you and I should be interested in. And it has a purpose. He has a purpose for us in understanding that. And it's a balanced purpose. 
it has a transformative quality. In fact, when writing to the Romans, Paul is really going through a kind of turning point in his own life and career. He's fulfilled his work in the Eastern Empire. He's on his way to Jerusalem to collect a, uh, an offering for the mother church of the Jewish people who are Christian followers in Jerusalem. And he, that's a relatively poor church. Rome is a relatively affluent city. He's writing to the Romans in hopes that they also will contribute, not only so that he can bring more money to those that are in need among the Christian group in Jerusalem, but so that he can build a bridge between Gentile believers and cosmopolitan Rome and Jewish believers and parochial Jerusalem. He's also planning to go further. He says in Romans 15, along with his statements about raising funds for Jerusalem, that he intends to come to Rome eventually after he goes to Jerusalem and ultimately go to Spain. Now what we know from the book of Acts is he gets arrested in Jerusalem. He does come to Rome, although he almost dies along the way, but God's purpose persists. But he's brought to Rome in chains and stands on trial there. Whether he ever made it to Rome or not, uh, excuse me, to Spain or not, we don't know. Um, it, some have conjectured that he might have. We don't have the record of that, but we know that he desired to. And so he's also trying to reach the entire world for Christ. It is a very profound purpose in the heart of Paul. And I would suggest that it's a purpose of God for you and I as well. There is a call of God that Paul wants to present to the people of Rome. It's his mission which comes out of his personal encounter, but it meets Rome's needs. The call of God for me today is to share with you the mission that God has enlisted me in and you in if you're a follower of Christ. And it is a mission which will not only put you on purpose with God, but also fulfill your personal needs. And yet Paul also has pragmatic interests. He knows that Rome has a particular experience of challenge between Jewish and Gentile believers that he wants to speak to in a comprehensive way that can actually inform the entire empire because Rome is a highly influential city and it's affluent. It's got resources that can be enlisted. Now, in the time that's remaining to me, I want to zero in on a closer view. Next week, we're going to talk more about some of the overview of Rome, Romans, and we're going to push into deeper territory in how Paul presents this argument about how everybody has kind of missed the mark, both secular, non-Jewish people and religious people, both Jew and Christian, have missed the mark, but God has enabled us to find his truth through his sacrifice and the demonstration of his righteousness, which can only be received by faith and by grace. But today, in the time that's remaining, I want to come in very close to look at these words that form Romans chapter 1. Verse 1. Paulus doulos, Jesu Christi, Kletos apostolos, aphoris minus eis euangelion theu. Now, I'm not great in Greek pronunciation, but it's one of the only verses that I've memorized in Greek because I absolutely am enthralled with virtually every Greek word in this statement. It means this, Paul, a slave or a bond servant of Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, called as an apostle who has been set apart, the word is literally cut out or cut apart for, the gospel, which is literally good news, the good message of God. Look with me at these words in closer detail. Let's start 
with Paul. As I mentioned here, there's about nine words or phrases that we're going to look at in some detail in the next uh, ten minutes or so as we come to the conclusion of this message and prepare to receive the body and blood of Christ. Paulos is simply his name. The man Saul is also called Paul. It's not two different names. It's just two languages saying the same name. The way that the Semitic name Saul is pronounced in the Greek language was Paulus. We say it in English as Paul. And so the very first thing that Paul presents is his identity, who he is. Now, an interesting thing about ancient epistles was that the writer would usually present themselves to their audience, especially if the audience was not immediately familiar with them, if they didn't have personal interaction, on the basis of certain um, values, certain powers, certain position that is actually very common to us even to this day. In other words, why am I going to listen to this letter? Why am I going to receive what's being written? Well, the letter writer would usually first appeal to their position. I'm in charge. I'm a military leader. I'm an emissary of the emperor. I have a positional um, power or authority over you. Another thing would be expertise. I'm an expert in this field. I have this education. I have received this scholarly training in the school of the philosophers. Or I have achieved something uh, in the business realm or in the military realm that presents me as an expert. So there was position and there was expertise. And then there was also just simply raw power. Maybe I have a lot of money over you. Maybe I have a lot of military force with me. Maybe I have a lot of popular power. And so there are many people who agree with my position, and that's my power. And so people writing letters would present themselves according to those terms. My high position, my great expertise, my tremendous power. But Paul, when he identifies himself, he identifies himself personally as someone subject to someone else in the lowest kind of category. Paulus doulas, a slave. So his identity is actually formed according to his fidelity. The encounter he had with Christ has informed him about who he is. It used to be that when Paul came as Saul, who was coming against the Gentile, uh, excuse me, coming against the Jewish believers in Christ, he was coming on the basis of his identity. I am Paul, well-educated in the Jewish ways, expertise in the scriptures, also positioned as this uh, liaison of the, uh, the Sanhedrin, the ancient Jewish council. So he had a position of authority. He was essentially a lawyer. You could think of him as counsel for a, a Senate committee. But he also had a kind of military or, or police empowerment through that role. So he came with expertise, and he came with the approval of his position with the Sanhedrin, and he came with power. I'll put you to death if you don't agree with what I'm saying. But he encountered Jesus who revolutionized all of that. What Paul realized was, my expertise is nothing. I've determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. I didn't come to you with fancy words and high learning. I came to you with Christ. Paul determined that instead of seeing himself as highly positioned and appointed, he saw himself as enslaved to this Lord of grace. And he didn't claim his own power. He said, I instead am here with something that the Jews consider an offense and the Gentiles consider a joke, but I'm not ashamed of it because it is the power of God for salvation. 
and it was the good news of God. So Paul subverts in the most Christ-like of ways, just as Jesus has done. Jesus who said, if you would be great, you must become what? A servant of all. And how can you be a servant of all unless you are first a slave of Christ? It's his purpose. Paul's purpose is not to elevate himself, but to elevate Christ and to serve the anointed Christ in unity. You and I, as we come to communion in a few minutes, come to unity with Christ and with one another. Paul is presenting himself to the Romans as someone who has a connection with them, even though they've never met. Just like you and I have a connection. Maybe you and I have never met. But right now, you, hearing this word of the Lord, can hear from me this affirmation that we are connected in Christ. If you will receive of his blood, if you will partake of his body, if you will enslave yourself to his grace, you will find freedom in his truth and connection with his people. And you will be likewise anointed by his spirit. Why are we Christians? Because we also have been anointed by the spirit of Christ, by his presence. His very presence is here in this cup, in this bread. And it's a present to you and I of purpose that we would find our identity in him and be called with capacity from him. Paulus Dulos, Jesu Christo, Kletos, called. You are called. You have a mission, and it's full of promise, potential. Now, you'll never fulfill your potential if you don't come to know your identity in Christ. But if you will submit yourself to Christ, you will find your calling and your capacity in him. The irony of this element of enslavement, which Paul's going to come back to again and again, and so you and I are going to come back to again and again. We've got a lot of ground to cover in weeks ahead. It's a dense kind of notion, but it really comes down to this. People today have a very uncomfortable attitude towards the notion of enslavement, in part because we have such a horrible, wicked history of enslavement in this country and really throughout the world, and nothing is more viewed with disdain and disgust in the contemporary world than the fact of slavery. Paul was writing to people for whom it was a daily reality. Many of them had been slaves. Some of them even were still slaves. Today, we might be very offended even by making such a comparison. But what you need to recognize is Paul is referring to a reality that we may be blind to, but we can't be free of, which is we are all slaves. We were born as slaves to sin in this world, and the wages of that enslavement are death. And you cannot overcome death. You can't overcome death by ignoring it and ignoring the reality of that and simply going your own way and saying, I don't care about God. You go further into death. That's Romans 1. You can't overcome death by trying to be righteous on your own and fulfilling all of the law because no matter how hard you try, you continue to fail. And you also fall into death. And that's Romans 2. But the promise of God is that everyone can be freed, but the irony is the way to freedom is enslavement enslavement to grace. And yet that enslavement is not intended to denigrate you because it is enslavement that leads to adoption. It becomes the way in which we become not just slaves, but sons and daughters of God. That's the capacity of God to call us into a great mission. And when you have a mission with a greater leader, you have been co-missioned by him. The great commission of Christ that we find in Matthew 28 is one that calls us to be sent, to be sent with the good news. Now, someone in the ancient Roman Empire and in the ancient world who was sent by a higher power 
to represent the good news that they did not want to be at odds with their people, but wanted to make peace and wanted to provide for them and not to enslave, but to liberate. That one was known as an apostolos, a, a messenger who was commissioned. It can be translated as commissioner or one that is sent. So Paul is not wearing it as a badge of honor. He's recognizing it as a purpose with a particular responsibility. If he fails to be a witness, he fails his purpose. But he also has been positioned with authority. Not his, but Christ's. Do you see how this statement about Paul is really a presentation about his statement of who you are meant to be in Christ? About what God offers you, a position of purpose. But it's an all or nothing prospect. When Paul says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ and I have been called to be a commissioner of this message, I have been called in such a way that I cannot do anything else. I am fully enlisted in this army. I am fully consecrated to this message and I am ruined for anything else. A forest menos means severed or cut. In your translation, it will often say something like set apart for um, and, and you won't necessarily give the more literal translation, in part because it's a kind of a euphemistic term, but it is nevertheless powerful to me to consider the, the literalness of that word and recognize that what Paul is saying is, I've been cut out to a pattern, and I've been ruined for anything else. It's like a, a, a sewing pattern for a shirt or a dress. Once you cut along the lines of that pattern to form that piece of fabric to that garment, it can't be made into a different garment now because it's been cut out for that one. It is shaped for that purpose alone. And that's what Paul is saying. I am now good for nothing but Christ. And that's more than enough for me. But I, I am also not looking to anyone or anything else but this message and this mission. It's why I've entitled today's sermon, Cut Out for Christ. Christ comes to you and says, I have given all of myself to you for free. But I'm asking you to give all of yourself to me for sure and forever. It's a totality that is permanent. There's no turning back. It's all or nothing. And you and I may as well be honest and clear-eyed about that. But if we are, and we give ourselves to him who has already given himself to us, we are drawn into something in such a way that we are made one with that purpose and one with that person. We are brought into Christ. You can't come into Christ halfway. It's all or nothing. But it's what you're cut out for. It's what you're made for. This cutout message doesn't mean that you can only be a pastor or a missionary. It means that no matter what you are, you're on a mission. Some are called to be teachers and some doctors and some nurses and some lawyers. And some are called to fix equipment and to prepare food. And some are called to form families. And yet, no matter what your particular purpose or career, according to the Lord, you can be sure that your placement in Him is one in which you are cut out for Christ in that particular arena to share the euangelion, the good news, the gospel of God, which is about freedom, which is about equality, that all people, whether Jewish or Gentile, whether male or free, whether enslaved 
or whether ensconced in power, whether rich or poor, whether old or young, whether black or white or Asian, wherever they're from, whatever their name, they had a common call in Christ. They're all lost without him. We're all one in him. That's the good news. And it's worth proclaiming. Proclaiming the good news of God, which is his holiness, which is his righteousness, which is his power. The power to save. The power to heal. The power to give sight. The power to correct. The power to conform. The power to of everlasting life. And it's the power of this cup, of his cross, of his body. I ask you to take the bread with me now. I want to, in these final moments, pray that you and I would see ourselves as people in an encounter with Christ, called and cut out for the proclamation of God's presence of his promise, and of his power. Are you sick? Here is healing. Are you worn out? Here is hope. Are you confused? Here is guidance. Are you grieved? Here is comfort. Are you isolated? Here is community. Are you lost? Here is salvation. In Christ. Lord, the breaking of this bread reminds us of the breaking of your body given for us. That you, who are one, would bring we, who are many, into one body in you. We thank you, Lord, that even as this bread is consumed, we are revived because of what you have done for us. Amen. Lord, we lift this cup before you the cup of your blood that you said was a new covenant. And that new covenant promise is articulated in Romans that there is now no condemnation in Christ. That all who are called and any who receive to be cut out for Christ are freed. Freed from slavery to sin. Freed from the edict of death, freed into the promise of life. Lord, we confess we are sinners. We fail, we falter, we disobey. We thank you, Lord, that you forgive us of those ways. And we ask you, Lord, that you would enslave us to your righteousness. Rather than being slaves to sin, make us, Lord, servants of your good news. Make us, Lord, submitted to your goodwill. Cut us out to be like you, Lord Jesus Christ, so that when people look at us, they would see you. Draw us together as one, Lord, and empower us for your mission and purpose. In Jesus' name. Amen.